Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Secret gold vaults in Asia, offshore bank accounts in tax havens, investing in timber plantations in Central America, obtaining a second passport, speaking multiple languages, and first-class travel around the world excite you, then you must pick up a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a strategic maverick. He is an author, novelist, and expert in foreign policy and national security strategy, and is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He began his career as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's storied 82nd Airborne Division. Among his many experiences, he dealt with warlords, raised small armies, worked with armed groups in the Sahara, transacted arms deals in Eastern Europe, and helped prevent an impeding genocide in Rwanda region. I have read his newest book, The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, and it is fantastic. And I have heard it is generating a lot of discussion inside the Pentagon. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Sean McFay. Sean, how are you? I'm doing well, Mikhail. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. I've read all of your books. I really, really enjoyed them, and they helped shed a lot of light for me on a few things that I didn't understand. Um, I love how that you bring a lot of history and show us how it actually affects our world today. I do. I I think history is uh, one of our best teachers, and it's so often ignored. And one of the things that history reveals is that sometimes the world that we grew up with, the world that we learn about in, say, you know, grammar school is actually not the way things unfolded. Uh, and I try to use history to, to reveal how we got to where we are today. And it usually surprises people in international relations. Well, absolutely. Like, it's so interesting. And, and I suppose I want to get into this a little bit later on. But when people think back of of human history, they kind of think that things are the way they've always been: taxation, state control, um, the the major major players on the international scene. They kind of think that that's the way it's always been. And in your writing, you really show that that's really a new thing. That's just the last few hundred years. It's been like that. That's right. And I and I like to use 
both nonfiction and as well as fiction to tell that story, to tell the story that, you know, when we think of governments and taxation and militaries and war and who gets to make war and international politics, we always think about like states. We always assume that states have been around forever, but in fact, that's not true at all. So, okay, so let's take one step back. So explain to me, how did you get into these types of things? What, like, I want to know a little bit of your backstory um, before you started making these, having these types of epiphanies and, and understanding these things. Sure. So um, like everybody, you know, I grew up, went to school. Um, then when I was a young man, I, I uh, volunteered to be a paratrooper in the U.S. Army in the 82nd Airborne Division. And this is a famous unit from World War II. Um, my, uh, my commanders were a young Stanley McChrystal, who became General McChrystal, a young David Petraeus, who became David, General Petraeus, as well as Abizade. A uh, young Colonel Abizade became General Abizade. So I was, I was, this is in the early 90s, and I, you know, was all about, you know, serving country, and I do believe in my country, the United States of America. But then I got out in 2000, and I, I got out because I thought the world would be nothing more than endless UN peacekeeping missions, and I didn't really want to do that as a paratrooper. I, mean, I wanted to, I wanted to kill people and break things, you know. Um, and uh, but then I sort of fell bass backwards into a couple different things. I I ended up working for a private military company in Africa, and I was participating in wars in Africa that really challenged everything I thought I knew about war and strategy and uh, how the international system really works. Uh, and, and from that, I looked around one day, we can talk about Africa if you like, but I looked around one day and I realized that there was no old people in my industry. I mean, I was a, I was a private military contractor, which is sort of a euphemism for a mercenary. And there's nobody old. And I thought, you know, this is, this is disturbing. Uh, and I also felt that some of the things I was, I was participant to were also disturbing. And I wanted to think deeply about them. So I went and finished a PhD at the London School of Economics. Uh, and now I write about it, as well as I'm a professor. Okay, so in your first book, you actually speak about mercenaryism, and that's the title of your book is The Modern Mercenary. Maybe take a couple of minutes for my listeners who don't understand these concepts and break that down first, because I guess that uh, understanding terminology and what we would understand as a modern mercenary will be very helpful going forward in the conversation. Of course. So when people think about mercenaries, they either think about like villains from Hollywood or they think about like lone guys with a Kalashnikov in the jungles of the Congo in the 1960s, or they think about money-grubbing, you know, murderous people who enjoy killing people for money. Uh, and they think, uh, but that's and we think of soldiers, you know, as saints. So mercenaries are like they're like uh, enemies, or they're like villains, and soldiers are saints. Uh, another way to think about it is that. Um, People think about like soldiers are your wives and mercenaries are prostitutes, right? Because uh, they, they make this sacred calling of national defense and turn into a transaction. But in fact, um, none of this is really true. I mean, most when we think of who gets to wage war legitimately, we only think of nations and their national armies. Um, but that's actually a recent invention. The mercenaries are the second oldest profession. And mercenaries are how wars have always been fought until 150 years ago. 
I mean, if you went to war, you went mostly with mercenaries. And, you know, the, the Bible talks about it. Uh, it never was scorn. Uh, the Roman Empire used mercenaries all the time. Uh, the Middle Ages in Europe and elsewhere were always fought with, with private market actors. In fact, the word soldier comes from the, the a Latin root of solde, which means coin. Um, so it's really strange that we today stigmatize mercenaries when they've always been seen as an honorable but bloody profession. And I kind of scratched my head about this. I was like, how did this come to pass? And this is sort of what the book, The Modern Mercenary, is about, because what's happening right now in the last 20 years is that mercenaryism is resurrecting in a major way, but always in the shadows, in ways that people have no idea about you know about what's going on, and that's part of their that's part of the reason they're being resurrected is because they give they give clients good plausible deniability in an information age, and in an information age, plausible deniability is more powerful in warfare than bullets. So speak to me a bit about the lexicon that people would probably come across. Uh instead of mercenary, because mercenary is probably not something you're going to see on CNN. Yeah, so mercenary is a dirty word, right? So what the industry has done is, is utilize uh, an army of euphemism. Um, the, they will say, I mean, people talk about private security contractors, private military contractors, contingency contractors, something along the words of contractor, or, or they'll say private security professional. Nobody will ever use the M word. Nothing is, is worse than the M word. Okay, so I understand, you know, they've, they've had to go forwards and change the word, and, but essentially it really is a mercenary force. So talk to me just for a couple more minutes on what it was like before the last 150 years of these standing armies with the state that we understand today. Sure. So, you know, for most of human history, nobody could afford their own standing army because it was too damned expensive. Just so they'd rent armies because renting is cheaper than owning usually. And that created this market for force, like any other market with supply and demand. And wars behaved according to market strategies as well as military ones. Market strategies blended with military ones. And this is the world that Machiavelli and the prince was talking about. And it's a world of endless conflict. The reason is because mercenaries like to start or elongate wars for profit. Also, clients who know better, anybody who is rich enough who could hire their own army could become a superpower and could wage war for whatever reason they wanted, no matter how petty. And as a result, there was always this persistent conflict going on at all times. And, it, and states were never a part of this. States were only in, sort of invented a couple hundred years ago. People fought for families, aristocratic families. They fought for, you know, sometimes a city state. Even like popes hired mercenaries. That was very common for, for most of history. So in a world awash in mercenaries, is a world awash within war. And much of human history has had this effect. So do you think that the world is more at peace now that we're under state control? Because it seems like we're still at war everywhere on the planet. Yeah, this is, a, this is the irony is that people think that um, states came in as a sheriff and, and sort of created a monopoly. They, they, bought, they basically bought out the mercenary trade and monopolized it, right? That's what happened sometime between 
1648 and 1850 when they, you know, we don't know exactly how it's a gradual process, but people, you know, like not just people, like political science, you know, believes that states organized everything, that states have been like timeless and universal. But let's not forget that on the watch of states, we had the bloodiest wars in history, like World War One, World War Two. These wars were bloody because states have huge organizing power and they could, you know, they could they could kill more people more efficiently than say ragtag mercenary bands and so forth. So states don't make us more secure. Well, and you you end up having an entire economic powerhouse going towards one thing, where I think before, if you had hiring mercenaries, I think that the soldiers would go and fight, but everything else was kind of left alone. With World War One, World War Two, you have entire nations putting everything that they have into annihilating their enemy. That's right. You have these total wars where the entire polity of people is mobilized for one single purpose, and that's you know destroying the other state. So a world of nation states, even though we're you know if you get a PhD in political science, you're taught to believe that again it's it's a it's timeless and universal. It's always been this way, which is a, which is. Uh, in fact, you know, ahistorical. And two is that states are, if it's not, if states were not in charge, it'd be anarchy and that'd be worse. But that's not true either. Much of the world around us today is, is disordered. We're seeing the sort of the Westphalian system of states retreat. This, you know, for the last 25 years, states everywhere are getting fragile and failing. When people talk about states, they only think about the top 30, which are like, you know, strong ones in like Western Europe, North America, Eastern Asia some other places in between. Nobody thinks about the other 175 other states who are in some degree of fragility. But, you know, a lot of these places are not collapsing in anarchy. You know, the sky is falling. Let's invest in more sky. The vacuum is being filled by non-state actors who provide imperfect but some governance. And let's not forget, a lot of states also provide imperfect and but some governance. Okay, so talk to me, what are these other non-state actors that are making a resurgence back on the field then? Well, the most familiar ones are, are sort of like terrorist groups. You know, we think about that. We think about, um, you know, is the Islamic State offering a brutal, some governance or Shabab in Somalia. Uh, we think about narco, narco organizations in, in Latin America. They, they're, they also offer some form of governance. Uh, sort of think of like a mafia, you know. Um, but it's not just them. It's also, you know, the Fortune 500, uh, again, imperfectly. And this is sort of what around corporate social responsibility is, you know, pretends or is about. Um, uh, or there's just local sort of travel governance in much of the world um, that, that, that persists regardless of what state or what, you know, terrorist group is there. Look at Ambar province um, in Iraq. So what we, or, or look at Somalia for that matter. I mean, regardless of who claims to be in charge, the day-to-day life of many people generally continues. They're not, it's not obliterated as some people fear. Yeah, because I, I, from my reading and research about places like Somalia, they do have a way to, to govern disputes um, it might not be a way that we agree with, but a lot of things are very tribal. So people are still organizing themselves in, in different fashions, although it might not be in state fashion. Right. And so state-centric thinkers don't see that. 
to them it's just you know they're to them they look at a map and if and they look at political boundaries as actually sort of those of states but the the actual boundaries of places like Africa do not reflect the the state boundaries at all in part because those state boundaries were drawn by European colonists in the late 19th century and do not reflect realities on the ground. Um, and so, but the, the state centricity of, say, North American thinking cannot, it cannot conceive it. It goes into cognitive dissonance. When you think about Eastern Congo, you know, it, we think of it as just complete mayhem. Well, parts of it are mayhem, but not all parts. And what's there, it's not being governed by states. It's being governed by something else, something local, something organic, and something more or less effective for the people on the ground. But w we need to learn how to, to think about the, the complexity of that politically, because in, in my books, I talk about how the world is returning to that and that the state order of the world is, it's still gonna be very strong in some pockets of the, of the planet, but in other pockets of the planet, it's going to evaporate. And that's not a bad thing. So that's a really interesting point. Now, that makes sense in places like Africa, where just as you said, the lines were drawn by, you know, in a boardroom in London or in Brussels or in somewhere like that, where they didn't really take into account the tribal lands and, you know, history that these tribes had with one another. But what about on the Western side? Do you think that we are going to see a decline in statism in North America, in Western Europe, in these types of places as well? Or do you think it's going to be more of the Africa and, and those types of regions? It's a great question, and I don't know for sure. I think that we will see in Western Europe there's a fight going on right now in the last 10 years about the identity of Europe and the EU. And we're seeing a rise of nationalism in part as a reaction to the, you know, you know, you know the immigrant, look at, look at the Brexit, um, it, you know, immigrants and others and other people feeling that their, their national identity is threatened. So we're seeing this play out and I don't know who the winner will be, you know, um, in, in Asia, you know, in China and I, you know, I, we're not, you know, I, China sort of, it has its own sort of, Han vision destiny in the next 50 years. Um, but don't ask the Tibetans, right? I mean, you're not allowed to do that. So I, I think in, in some places like North America, China, you know, we it will stay strong. But I think, and I think Europe is a question mark. I and mean, what Europe looks like in 50 years, I think, is anybody's guess. And they're kind of trying to fight for that in both sides. But I think most of the world, though, is 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 not looking like that. I mean, I think vast swaths of the Middle East, South Asia, Latin America, uh, really are not about. You know, states are becoming less important. They're like they're becoming like counties in the United States of America. You you're on a patch of land, but you don't really control exactly who comes in, who comes out. You have some limited taxation, some limited to arrest people, but every, it's not like you have this monopoly of power that we assume states to have. And we're, you know, we're seeing also some states around the world hollow out and just become regimes inside of states uh, or just become a ghost, like a hollowed state entirely, state and name only. So this is kind of the breakup of some of the larger countries when you look at like the Basque region in Spain that wants to separate and then you have Scotland that wants to annex from the rest of the country and, and different places like this. Um, it seems like some of these powerhouse countries are becoming more fractured and people are having a closer identity with a smaller group of people opposed to a giant national identity. Yeah, so in the 1990s, we, we, 
we got a, a noun from this, the balkanization, you know, the balkanization of this, the balkanization of that. And that's been the trend since after the Cold War is that these polities, they, they were covered up and patched up with cheap plaster to make them to make Yugoslavia like a, a unified whole. But those ancient divisions, which go back to the fourth century AD, never quite disappeared. And that's the case for many places in the world. We have we have maps, and we see a, a you know one color within a boundary, and that's a, that's the country of Jordan, or that's a company of, of whatever. But in reality, you know the the actual politics on the ground may not reflect this, those political maps that we all have hanging on our walls. Well, and I think it's also difficult for someone like me to understand. I'm Canadian. We have a pretty strong national identity. I guess the the Quebecois perhaps have a slightly different. Um, we've had referendums with them before, but it doesn't really matter to us if you're from Toronto or if you're from five thousand kilometers away from Vancouver. You're Canadian. You're Canadian. You're Canadian. Like it doesn't. We don't see that massive difference there. And I suppose that's because our country is so young. But as you said, with these countries that go back thousands of years and and problems with Ottomans on this side or the Baltics on this side. And, you know, that's got to cause a lot of animosity that, that runs very deep. Well, not only that, but one of the favorite tools of um, the colonial age is that great, you know, imperial powers would, de- would deliberately uh, mess with that. They would either put a big boundary through a huge group of people like the Duran line in, in Pakistan uh, to, to sort of separate people, or they would import, uh, you know, that they would import other groups into a place to sort of pacify it, to sort of mix up like who owns that land. So that you saw that in the, the Great Lakes region of Africa with Hutu and Tutsi. You see this in Sri Lanka with the import of Tamils into Sinhalese territory. I mean, the, the colonials, I mean, we get the, the discipline of cultural anthropology. It comes, it's the handmaiden of colonialism. It was, it was invented by British and French military officers as a non-kinetic way to conquer lands and to pacify them. But it deliberately messes and blurs up all these ancient identities in ways that are either volatile or they sort of, uh, sort of uh, blunt sort of insurgency that way. Well, and in one of your books I was reading, you talk about the Chechenian war and how they took all the Chechenians and basically spread them all across Russia so that they would never be a majority in one area, and it really pacified them as a people. Yeah, that's called Operation Lentil. happened in 1943. So, you know, it's funny, and, you know, America, its version of counterinsurgency, which is sort of winning hearts and minds, it's a complete farce. Um, and, it, and it failed miserably in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And the reason it failed is because counter, the strategic logic of counterinsurgency is this, is that po- populations are bribable, and they are not. Um, you can't go to, like, China can't go to Detroit and say, look, Detroit, or go to Winnipeg, say, look, Winnipeg, well, you know, if we give you free food, free housing, and a football stadium, you just have to vote communist. The people will, you know, say, well, we'll take all your stuff, but we ain't going to go commie. If you really want to do counterinsurgency correctly, it's bloody and awful and requires the things you're talking about. It requires massacring a lot of people, <laughs> innocents included. It requires exporting people like in in Russia and in Chechnya when Stalin took this, you know, the uppity Chechens and he force migrated them across 
13 time zones to Soviet Union. So they became a minority in somebody else's homeland. Or you import your people into somebody else's homeland and make them a minority in their own homeland. And it's usually a combination of those three, which is exactly what China did in Tibet. Morocco's done in Western Sahara. Uh, it's what the United States of America did in the 19th century to settle the West. That's how you really do counterinsurgency and you, and you deliberately manipulate the, the actual polities on the ground. You, that's how you, you, you control populations this way. And it's brutal. It's arguably unethical. Uh, but this is how states conquer. Well, when I was reading your books, you make an, quite an argument. And, and I suppose this really goes to your newest book, The New Rules of War. You talk about how in the West, we're still using a lot of the kinetic war, but it's these alternative ways of waging war that are really going to be the deciding factor going forward. That's right. So when we think in the West, when the West thinks about war, well, you know, there's a saying that generals always fight the last war. We've heard this before. And this truism happens to be true. And what it really means is that generals always fight the last successful war. And for countries like the United States of America and NATO, the last successful war was World War II. You know, and we still think about like how war should be fought. It should be battlefield victory. It's sort of Napoleonic warfare, but we see it in movies like Star Wars. It's like conventional war in space, you know, uh, with mystical lightsabers. But we we think that we invest heavily in firearms and and what we call the utility of force in strategic lexicon. And what that means, it's the usefulness of force, and we rank it supreme. But in fact. The way war in the future of war, it's not going to get more about firepower. War is getting sneakier. It's getting cunning. It's more like Sun Tzu over CrossFits and a Russian theorist that is sort of supreme uh, in Western strategic thinking. And we're seeing that some of the best weapons don't fire bullets. But meanwhile, Western militaries can't wrap their head around this. And they're fighting what I call the old rules of war, which is why they're so frustrated uh, in all the sort of military adventures in the last 20 years, um, is because they're fighting a way of war that is obsolete, whereas the smart enemies today, they're cunning. They're not strong. So talk to me about some of the new ways that war is being waged on the earth today then. Well, so in this book, The New Rules of War, that's causing some stir in the Pentagon and elsewhere, it, you know, I proposed that, you know, it asks this question, like, how does America, which has, it's not just America, why, how does the West, quote unquote, it's an imperfect term, how does the West have the strongest militaries in the world, yet it gets routinely frustrated by small, unsophisticated foes, right? How does this, how does this happen? And the answer is, is that war has moved on, but the West has not in its way of warfare. Um, and then I propose these 10 new rules, like if you're going to fight to win, use these as strategic principles, but they make no sense to a traditional war theorist. For example, I would say like, you know, we think of war as like pregnancy. You either are or you're not at war. Or better yet, it's like a light switch. Like it's either on or it's off. And when it's on, you get to do things that you would not normally do in peacetime, like massacre civilians, you know? Um, but in, in reality, there's no such thing as war or peace. It's war and peace. And we have strategically cunning 
adversaries like China who get right in between that, that space in our mind between war and peace, and they exploit it for victory. An example of this is like the South China Sea. So like we are, you know, we are throwing, China is winning the South China Sea slowly, one island and maybe one ally at a time, and they're doing it with aircraft carrier groups, which makes no sense to the U.S. Navy. And so we, the U.S. is throwing more carrier groups to deter China. It's not working, and they scratch their head and say, why is it not working? The way China is doing this is that they're doing a strategic Aikido on us. Uh, and, and think of like Aikido is like this martial art where you use the enemy's weight against you. They go right up to the brink of war with an island. You know, they'll, they'll go right to the brink of war, right to, to the point where the United States of America will flip that war switched on, but they stop right at the brink, but they keep everything they capture or kill. And the U.S. doesn't respond because it's technically at peace. They keep on doing this again and again and again. And this is how, this is their strategy for winning the South China Sea. And it doesn't require firearms. It doesn't require nuclear weapons. It requires strategic cunning. And the U.S. is like a bull to, to their cape. And that's the problem. My new book, Expat Secrets, is based on my own experiences from traveling to more than 100 countries over the last 20 years of being an expat. There is no fluff in this book, just actionable advice from someone who leads this type of lifestyle every single day. So if you want to pay zero taxes, live overseas, and make giant piles of money, then I want you to grab a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. That's really interesting. Talk to me a little bit about some of the other things that China are doing, because I heard in your book talking about lawfare, or like I had never heard this term before, and maybe I'm even saying it wrong. No, lawfare is that's, that's how you say it. So, in, you know, China, you know, the West, America has tried to create an international order that really serves American interests. So think of it like international law, international organizations, international law norms the last 70 years since World War II, the United States has really been a, a leader, a thought developer in this. But think of it like uh, they're, they think of it like a casino. And the international order, the United States is the house, and everybody gets to gamble <laughs> against the house. Uh, and what's happening is some countries like Russia and China are trying to take over the, the house, they're trying to take over the casino, and they're trying to undermine international order. Um, and so they're doing this via lawfare. And what lawfare means is that they are brazenly challenging, ignoring, misinterpreting in a, in a brazen way international law. Uh, so when, when China's in the South China Sea, for example, and they, they claim an island is theirs, even though, you know, by international law, it's, it's owned by Vietnam, you know, and, and the International Court of Justice says, no, it's actually owned by Vietnam. What China will do is they'll like, they'll create their own, you know, set of legal scholars to say why the international legal norms are wrong, and they'll, they'll justify it that way. And it's not even subtle. I mean, it's almost comical. It's almost satirical. Um, but that's lawfare. Um, it's a way to undermine international rule of law. Well, this is fascinating because I really 
I suppose before reading your books, I really did think of war in one way. I suppose the only exception would be the um, the trade war. That's the only other word that we had had seen come up lately in regards to war. But when you're talking about lawfare and these other ways that the other nations and other groups of people are waging wars, and it's not actually killing people, but it's still getting their their objectives met. It's it's really fascinating, and I think that it's a really important for people to understand um, how this is shaping our world today. Well, that's right. So we think of war, we're old fashioned thinking. We think of war as like battlefield victory. We think of World War II, you know, uh, battles of uh, the Battle of the Bulge, Midway, whatever. And that's, and, and the fate of battles seals the fate of nations, right? That's how we think about what war is. But that's not what war has been historically, and it's not the future. Actually, that's a conventional war, and there's nothing more unconventional in the world today than a conventional war. And a conventional war is like two nation states fighting total wars with militaries, etc. Think of World War II. There are many ways. Rule number 10 of my new rules of war is that there is, victory is fungible. There's many ways to win, and there's many ways to lose. And what winning means, war at its essence is armed politics. And what winning means is that did you achieve your objectives? How you achieve them, whether it was by bullets or by something else, lawfare, is, is secondary. It's did you achieve your objectives? And you know, there's many ways to, to achieve your objectives. So for example, if your objective is that you want the world to recognize you as the hegemon, as, as the, the world leader, you know, you want everybody speaking, say you're Chinese, you want everybody speaking Chinese by 2050, you know, as a second language. That's a, you know, that, that could be, you could either do it by war like the Nazis tried to do, or you can be cunning as the Chinese are doing. So for example, McCall, when was the last time you saw a Hollywood movie with China as the villain? Not anymore. Even, um, I remember White House Down, it was supposed to be the Chinese, and they changed it to the North Koreans. Or the Red Storm, yeah, there's something like that, like Red Dawn 2 or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, the reason that China is never a villain, if it's always a good guy, is because they bought Hollywood legally. They own Hollywood. They greenlight all movies, and they have an agenda, and that's always cast China as being good, as being benevolent. And this is, this is important because as war gets sneakier in the future, as it gets, it's, you know, it's becoming epistemological, where victory is no longer determined on battlefields. Victory is determined by, you know, those who can figure out truth from lies, that determines winners and losers. And so strategic influence, controlling the narrative of conflict, the narrative of competition, that is modern war's victory. And so buying Hollywood is a lot more um, powerful than an aircraft carrier group, right? Or in some ways, if you can mess with the democracy's elections, that is victory. You know, Russia has tried to do that, United States of America, it's tried to do this in the EU. We don't know how successful they were. They could have been a could have been a joke. It could have swung a close election, but that's another way to do it. It's like the strategic logic is this. And this is again rule ten: victory is fungible. Who cares about the sword if you can manipulate the arm that wields it? That's how war is getting sneaky and how it's getting cunning. And those who just think about war traditionally as bullets flying around, they will be the first and the easiest to manipulate. Well, and that's fascinating about Hollywood because my assumption and and I pay a lot of I pay a lot of attention to China. My assumption was that 
the Chinese consumer added so much to the bottom line that they wanted to now start being nicer to the Chinese. But it sounds like that's not the case at all. They're really purposefully doing these things so that we have a better opinion of them. Well, I think it's both is what it is. Um, and it's not, just, it's not just that. So China, which is fighting the new rules of war, it ha- if you look at its strategy, it has a national security strategy. It's called the three warfare strategy. And it's our strategy how to push the U.S. out of the Pacific region, how to become a global hegemon. The three warfares are these. One is influence, which is what we're talking about right now, strategic influence. And they do this all sorts of ways. They do it by trolls. They do it by Hollywood. They do it by state-owned TV. They do it all sorts of ways. The second is lawfare, which we've also discussed. And the third is economic power. Okay, There is no fourth. There's no fourth military power. And the economic power is like this. It's the One Belt, One Road initiative. On one hand, is to open new markets for China and the world, and that's great. On the other hand, it's a national security security strategy. I mean, just look at Sri Lanka, which got you know Tony Soprano out of the largest port. You know, basically got like, you know, it's like predatory lend- lending to capture ports legally through you know and having economic powerhouses, sort of using monopoly power, uh, market power, as well as just military power. So you know, there's there's many ways to fight wars. Not all of them are kinetic. So what is the West doing? Where are we spending our money on our military? Like, how are we waging war? So we're waging war according to the old rules of war, which no longer work. And that's the danger. And that's what this this book, The New Rules of War, is trying to flag. Uh, We're stuck. You know, think think about it this way. Go. Let's go 100 years back. You know, victorious nations are very reluctant to change the way they fight wars. And why should they? Look at, after World War I, look at France and England. They were the victorious nations after World War I, and they thought the future wars would look like the past ones with better technology. They thought, you know, most, and most war futurists always think this, that the, the next war will look like the past war, but better with better technology. So the past war in the 1920s, in their day, it was World War I. It was trench warfare with like static line defense, long wars of attrition. So where did they throw their money? They threw their money in a super trench system called the Maginot Line. The Maginot Line was on the border of Germany and France and was supposed to keep Germany out. And of course, Germany innovated and they went right around the Maginot Line, right, in World War II. We have the same thing today. We're investing in Maginot Lines. Our Maginot Lines are things like aircraft carriers and jet fighters, things that no longer are used in war. Aircraft carriers, like the new Ford-class carrier, cost $13 billion a ship. $13 billion a ship before you add aircraft to sailors. The F-35 fighter jet, it costs $1.5 trillion, the whole program. That's more than Russia's GDP. And in two long wars that America fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, that fighter jet flew zero combat missions. You know, it's a useless war weapon, right? So America is backwards looking. It thinks that the future, we're fighting our own Maginot Line. It thinks the future will be conventional war with better technology. Think of like 
Tom Clancy and Red Storm Rising. Think of all these like movies that come out that depict the future of war. It's all World War II with better technology. Meanwhile, you can make the argument that the United States of America is already at war with China, is already at war with Russia. And part of those countries' strategy is to keep America from understanding that. So we're spending all these millions and billions of dollars on these types of things, and it's not working. So what is going to work, or, or, or what are we doing that is working? So what we, in this case, meaning primarily the United States of America and the, its allies who want to fight alongside the United States, it's not doing enough, and that's, it's, it's doing very little, actually, and that is the problem, and that's why I wrote The New Rules of War, and it's not that we need a, a super weapon. What we need to do is change the way we think about war. We need to become much more supple in what war entails. It's not just firepower on battlefields anymore. It's things like influence. It's things like lawfare. It's things like economic warfare, uh, and that this is all actually part of of war and war may not be the right word you can say competition you can do something else but we need to, the things that we do have that work for example are special operations forces but special operations forces the US special operations forces are are overdeployed everywhere all the time because they do work um, but they're not, you know, they're not really a solution. They're, they're, they, they do one thing very well, and, we, and the U.S. tries to use them for all sorts of things that doesn't work out. Um, but we're also seeing the rise, for example, of mercenaries, and this gets back to the original point. I mean, mercenaries do these things very well. They, they innovate, and we're seeing mercenaries like the Wagner Group, which is this Russian mercenary outfit, go to Venezuela to, to you know, kneecap the Venezuelan military to make sure it doesn't, you know, defect to Gaido and stays with Maduro. I mean, mercenaries uh, are an example of the new rules of war. In fact, one of the rules is that mercenaries are returning. And when you privatize war, it changes warfare in profound ways because suddenly market strategies can blend with military ones and our current four stars have no earthly concept of what that looks like. Okay, so we know that the way that we are doing things right now is not working. We're spending billions of dollars on aircraft carriers and we're not putting money where it needs to go. But I also want to talk to you about the idea of the private militaries and the way that they're going to be waging war. Are they going to be waging it in the traditional fashion? Are they going to be waging it in the new fashion? How does that look? Yeah, so the future of war is not going to look like anything that a traditional warrior would recognize. And that's partly the, it, by design. So an example of what the future world might look like, look at how Russia took the Ukraine, right? Uh, they, in the old rules of war, if they wanted something, they would send in tanks, right? Think of Hungary 1956, Czechoslovakia 1968. That's how they do it in the old rules of war. In the new rules of war, look about how they took the Crimea. They could have blitzkrieged right into Eastern Ukraine. Their military was strong enough compared to Ukraine's but they didn't. They used secret means to do so. They used Spetsnaz special forces. They used little green men. They used mercenaries like the Wagner Group. They did, they used proxies like the Donbass battalions. Uh, and they used a lot of propaganda, what they call active measures. So what they did is we live in a global information age and they, they manufactured the fog of war for victory and they stepped through it. So by the time 
Western policymakers and the rest of the world was scratching their head and wondering what's really going on in the Ukraine. The Ukraine was a fait accompli. By the time the conventional forces and the tanks and the destroyers showed up in Sebastopol, it was a fait accompli. That's what the future of war looks like. It does not look like the Battle of the Bulge. It looks like sneakiness. It looks like cunning. Uh, and that's how it works. So I think we're going to see more of that in the future. And it's not just countries who can do this. It's anybody who's wealthy enough can do this someday. I think the Fortune 500 could do this. Oligarchs can do this. Mega churches could do this. And for any reason they want, including some good reasons. But war is going to, it's going to separate from the power of the nation state and become a lot more, this is not the right word, but democratic. I mean, or plut more of a plutocracy. Uh, anybody who can afford it can wage it. So do you think, like, I understand for companies like Exxon, where they have natural resources all over the world, and they need to protect, like, their pipelines and their refinery plants and things like that. Okay, that makes sense. But do you think that wage war is going to be waged by other fi Fortune 500 companies? Do you think that Amazon or Google or, or companies like that will need to have access to force in the future? I would hope not, uh, I, and I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, we know that the extractive industry, you know, it has to go to where their asset is, and they're frankly tired from their point of view of being shook down by corrupt host national governments, you know? Uh, and so now that you can rent mercenaries in the open market and sort of like de facto legitimized, that's what they're actually doing, is starting to do that. Uh, do other companies, would they need to do that? I don't know. I mean, does a does Walmart need that or you know, Ford Motor Company? Maybe they might do it to protect their supply chain uh, and secure it. But I, I honestly, I have no idea. I think it's possible, but I'm not saying it's going to happen. Well, you know, when I first started doing my reading and research on you and hearing about private companies having uh, permission, quote unquote, for force, the, the idea was very terrifying. But as a libertarian and trying to understand that states are the only one who have the permission to use force. And that's not really the case how it's always been. So then my mind starts going into other companies like Walmart and I don't know, Amazon, like we just mentioned. Um, because you have these, these, these people that are worth billions of dollars that their companies are actually larger than the GDP for many nations in the world um, have you know, billions of dollars at their disposal. I'm just curious what that is going to entail for us in the future if these types of organizations continue to grow. Well, if it continues to grow, it might look a little bit like the British East India Company, right? Uh, which, you know, was, it was the tool of imperialism for Great Britain, but it grew so powerful, it's hard to tell who served whom, the crown or the British East India Company. And remember, the British East India Company was also like a hybrid. It was sort of owned by the crown, but also a joint venture uh, company. Um, so I think if you have a completely private sector like multinationals, who knows why they might uh, wage war, but we know that they have the resources to do so, and the supply and demand of the market for forest is re-emerging as it has always been there. Uh, and who's to say that they will be better stewards of warfare than nation states? I mean, I sort of joke would you, you know, to people like, would you rather be a POW of Blackwater or a POW of Zimbabwe, you know? Um, so we can't always privilege nation states as being honest, 
honorable brokers when their history has been so horrific. Yeah, the, the, we have some success stories in the world, um, you know, but some of them have gone too far. If you look at the infringement on people's personal privacy and and the nanny states, you know, with surveillance and things like that, you can argue that they've gone too far in one direction. And then we still have all these failing states around the world. I don't know. It's an interesting topic um, to try to understand. Yeah. Well, it's what's important is though is that this global the, the global world order is changing, right? It's shifting back to normal. It's returning to the status quo ante, which to to a state centric person it looks like anarchy. But if you look at the grand sweep of history, it's just returning back to normal, and that doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. Um, you know, the world was stable, and it's it had, I call it durable disorder. There's disorder, but it endures. It doesn't collapse in anarchy. And the future is going to look more like that. It's going to look more like the 21st century will look more like the 14th century than the 20th. And that's not a bad thing, except for dentistry. <laughs> I do like a good dentist. Um, okay, so the last thing that I really want to get into with you, and, I, and I, I imagine that you have some opinions about it, is the trade war, which I, I briefly brought up before. What do you see happening with that? What can we expect is going to be a, an outcome with the trade war in China? Well, the risk of the trade war is that it can actually become a shooting war, right? Uh, or there'll be an accidental shooting war um, that it, it doesn't just deal with trade, but it spills over to other facets of policy that lead into foreign um, confrontation. And that if you have a bunch of like, you know, you know, we talked about how navies and so forth are, are, are becoming less important in warfare. But it doesn't mean they're going to go away. And they can start something by accident, a shooting war, that the countries then get sucked into. That's the worst case scenario, but it's definitely a scenario. Um, but I, you know, I think that many, many people think that it's inevitable that China and the United States will go to war because they think you know, China's a rising hegemon and the United States is a reigning hegemon. But I'm not convinced that's the case at all. Um, I don't. I think war is optional. I mean, World War One could have been averted uh, had maybe different personalities been at the helm of the crisis in 1914. Um, so you know, it's hard to say what will happen. But what I fear is that it could lead to a broader, uh, a broader war that can involve uh, people dying. That's absolutely my fear as well. Uh, it's you know. Uh... I think having you on the show is it's very different than a lot of the other guests that I've had on here. But I think that I really wanted to have you on because I need to understand certain things about the world. And because, as I've mentioned a thousand times on the show, I'm a libertarian and I don't want to see bombs dropped on villages and things like that. And I would rather see these types of things happen in the courtroom. I would rather see it in economic war. Now, obviously, the sanctions that have gone on in some types of countries you know, people starving and things like that, that's not very good either. But I mean, a predator drone dropping bombs on women and children is, is just so horrendous to me that I, I, I would just rather have anything besides that. So understanding new wages of war and ways that we can, we quote unquote, can get what we want, I think it seems like a better alternative. Well, I think the, I agree with you. Uh, and war is is horrific under any circumstance of any era of any age. The way we can reduce bloodshed now is to realize how warfare has changed and to change with it, to evolve, or grow, not to evolve, to grow with it. Because if we are 
if we are the French in the Maginot Line, which is where we are today, that's the worst possible case for everybody. Uh, if we can get smart on how warfare is waged today, how it's won, how it's lost, then we can go about the, the tough and important work of trying to stop it. Brilliant. I love it, Sean. Super, super interesting conversation today. Um, I encourage all of my listeners to pick up your books and to explore these subjects more. If they want to get a copy of your book, um, if they want to reach out to you, where can we send them? Well, you can try my website at seanmcfate.com. Uh, my books are all on Amazon. They're Audible. They're Kindle. You can get in many different ways. Um, and I write both fiction and nonfiction, but they tell, as they say, two sides of the same story. Uh, so it depends how you, how you like your thing. But I use the fiction as a way to, to describe a world that you can't always describe using nonfiction. But my book, my work is, I, I write deliberately so it's accessible, so anybody can read it. Well, the Tom Locke books, I listened to them both on Audible and the voice actors that you guys got to do those books are phenomenal. It's like you're watching a movie. Um, they did a fantastic job on it and, and I just love your writing so much. Thank you. Thank you very much to, for your time, Sean, and we'll talk soon, okay? That'd be great. Thank you very much, Mikhail. It's a pleasure being on your show. Secret gold vaults in Asia, offshore bank accounts in tax havens, investing in timber plantations in Central America, obtaining a second passport, speaking multiple languages, and first-class travel around the world excite you, then you must pick up a copy of my brand new book, Expat Secrets, on Amazon today. Just go to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.